It's uh, 3.14 a.m. Tuesday morning here in Kiev. Um, yet another loud night. Um, about an hour ago, we had an air raid siren, which many of us slept through because we haven't uh, had a decent night's sleep for a few days. The Globe's senior international correspondent, Mark McKinnon, is back in Kiev, Ukraine. The city has been under attack this week by Russian drones and missiles. You can first you hear buzz like maybe you can hear in the background right now. It sounds like um, the locals call them mopeds because they sound a bit like uh, food delivery bikes flying through the air. There's one there. That's one of the drones sent by Russia. And then, hopefully, inevitably, you hear the work of air defense shortly after that, which can sometimes be a large blast. So right now, just moving away from the windows in our apartment here in the center of Kyiv. Um, at the early days of the war, people would go to shelters, but these days, many of the shelters aren't working, except for the, the subway stations, which are used as uh, shelters by uh, during the day. But to get to one right now would mean running in open air for several minutes in the streets, which would be more dangerous than staying put. So most of the city just sits in their um, apartments and waits it out. Um, can still hear the faint buzz right now of one of the Iranian Shahid drones. Getting fainter now, it's moved past wherever we are. Anyways, this is the third consecutive night like this. There have been 140 drones uh, and Russian cruise missiles fired at us over the last three days. And for most of us, we're just exhausted. And there's uh, one of the bigger blasts and hopefully the end of that moped. After months of relative quiet in Kyiv and front lines of the war that barely moved, things are now changing. Today, Mark tells us what these attacks signal and what a new Ukrainian counteroffensive might look like. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and this is The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Mark, thank you so much for joining me again. Thanks for having me on. So you sent us that audio diary of what that one night was like in Kiev, uh, the capital city. It's 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 pretty dramatic. Uh, can I ask you, what have things actually been like in the city over the past few days? Um, well, last night, uh, Tuesday night, was the first um, peaceful sleep the city has had uh, since the weekend. Um, Saturday night, going into Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night. Have all been um, you know, pretty pretty terrifying for residents. Um, reminding those of us who were here back at the start of the war of those days. I mean, this is the first time since then where it really felt like Kiev was under direct attack. Uh, there have been, of course, rocket attacks throughout the war, but not quite like this, where you saw three consecutive nights every night. Um, you know, thirty, forty, fifty 
rockets and drones sent towards the city. Um, and, and then also a daytime attack in the middle of that on, on Monday. Um, so it was quite, uh, quite intense, uh, almost impossible to sleep through, as you might have heard in the audio set that I sent along. Um, you know, everywhere you are in the city, you would have heard these drones, you would have heard the uh, anti-aircraft defenses, and uh, most of them are actually where these Iranian-made uh, Shahid drones. They add a little bit of a sense of dread because you can hear them overhead for, for a long time. It's not like a rocket where you sort of hear or don't hear uh, a whiz and then uh, you know, an explosion. It's, you sort of hear this operating overhead and you don't know, you know where, in, where the city is headed for. That's actually, that's pretty nerve wracking. So you can actually hear the sound of the drone and you're not really sure what the target is. Yeah, and you can hear it getting louder and louder and it feels like it's coming towards you. And then hopefully, or at least in every incident so far, you eventually hear it start to fade and you realize it's gone somewhere else or was aimed somewhere else or, or even um, the best ending, of course, is, is the explosion, which means it's been hit out of the air by Ukrainian air defenses. Unfortunately, um, when you hit something like that out of the air, um, pieces of metal, burning metal, fall to the ground. And that has resulted in some injuries, some fires, and a couple of deaths in the last few days. Oh, yeah, of course. One of the things that seems clear with these attacks on Kiev is there is a, the United States donated a Patriot missile battery, which is um, used to shoot incoming projectiles out of the air. And it has been extremely effective. Uh, the Ukrainians say that on Monday during the daytime attack when Russia sent Iskander uh, ballistic missiles at the city, which are very dangerous weapons. It was the Patriot system that sort of um, was was crucial to making sure none of them hit their targets. It, I think many people think the Patriot system is the target, and the um, Russians' using of drones is to try and figure out where the Ukrainian air defenses are. The drones, as I said, are cheap. The missiles are expensive. By forcing the Ukrainians to fire things into the air to shoot down these drones, the Russians are maybe, perhaps, trying to ascertain where these more sophisticated air defense weapons are so they can make those the target. Huh. Uh, so I guess what does all of this mean for, for day-to-day life in Kiev right now? Well, I mean, it's it's amazing, actually, because it has just been taken on board. It's incredible what, what humans can get used to. And, and, you know, at the start of the war, air raid sirens would send all of us um, heading into shelters, eventually sent many of us fleeing from the city. Now, um, for the last few months, and, and I think someone calculated that over the first year of the war, so up until February, there'd been more than a thousand air raid sirens in Kiev, which tells you, you know, three a day. Um so they just become part of life. But during the day, people in Kiev, they, they mean, the cafes outside are packed. Um, they recently extended the curfew, which had been 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. Now it's midnight. Um, you know, so bars and restaurants stay open until 11 p.m. to give their staff enough time to get home. Um, and So people are living their normal lives, it sounds like, during the day then. People are going about their daily business. Absolutely. And and on uh, Monday, when we had this daytime attack, people were still sort of sitting outdoors in cafes waiting for their coffee when the alarm started. It was only when they started to hear the explosions, people thought, OK, this is it's time to react and, and, you know, put down my coffee and get into a shelter. Yeah. So, Mark, as you said, you know, the first few weeks of the war were, were quite tense in Kiev, but things have been relatively quiet since then. So why are we seeing attacks on the capital now then? I think the most important context right now is there is a looming Ukrainian counteroffensive. For months now, 
There ha- Ukraine has been receiving more and more advanced weapons from its allies. It's got these tanks, including these Leopard tanks uh, that were donated by Canada and other countries. Um, it's got uh, advanced rocket systems that can hit deeper and deeper behind Russian lines. And they have troops who have been training, including with Canadian troops in uh, in Britain, who have been training and getting advanced sort of uh, preparations for what they hope will be a push to take back some of the land that Russia has captured in this country. That counteroffensive is expected, you know, any day now, any week now. Um, and perhaps the Russians realize that they're not in a very good strategic position at the moment. And there is an attempt here to sort of up the ante to um, put pressure on Kiev to show like, you know, if you escalate, we can escalate. In parallel with everything that's happened here this week, Russia has deployed nuclear weapons or said it's deployed nuclear weapons to Belarus, which is a huge escalation. There haven't been nuclear weapons in that, you know, European state since the end of the Cold War. So I think the messaging here is uh, less to Kiev than it is to, to NATO, to Ukraine's allies in the West, that, you know, we can continue to escalate. I don't know if they're trying to dissuade the counteroffensive or message that the war doesn't end even if you gain some more towns, but they seem to be related. And at the same time that these attacks are happening in Kyiv, uh, there's also been other recent attacks actually in Russia, particularly even in the capital, Moscow. Uh, so, Mark, can you just tell me a little bit about what's been going on there? Yeah, there are two separate things that have happened over the last sort of week or so. And and the first was um, an attack into the Belgorod region, which is neighboring Ukraine's province of, of Kharkiv, which saw two units of uh, Russian citizens um, who are fighting on the Ukrainian side of this conflict. They're called the Free Russia Legion and the Russia Volunteer Corps. They pushed into um, Belgorod for mostly a demonstration that it was possible. They seized control of a couple of towns, had a border post on fire. Uh, there were some videos showing them raising their flag in various these, these little towns along the border. Then you know they were eventually either withdrew or beaten back, depending on which version you believe. And is it important that they are Russian citizens doing this? Yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, so Ukraine, one of the promises that Ukraine's had to make in exchange for receiving all of this military support from the West is that they won't use this to attack Russian territory. This support from the West is meant to help Ukraine liberate its own land, not to expand the war or um, to attack Russia directly. Yeah. I interviewed the political uh, leader of one of these two formations this week in Kiev, and he said, you know, ah, you know Ukraine's keeping us promises. We didn't make any promises. We're Russian citizens. And and then separately, we've seen on, um, on I guess that was Tuesday, I'm losing track here with the lack of sleep, um, there was uh, a, a drone attack on Moscow, very similar, smaller in scale to what we've seen here. Um, depending on, again, on reports, the Russian Defense Ministry said they encountered eight drones. There are other reports saying it was closer to 25 that attacked various uh, sort of flew towards Moscow. This was obviously, it seems, a reply to the three days of attacks here on Kyiv and a demonstration that the war is shifting in a different direction than Vladimir Putin ever could have expected. Again, though, the Ukrainians aren't claiming credit for that one or saying it was that, uh, you know, they're just saying, oh boy, whoever did that, great job, because they want to stay away from the accusation that uh, they are breaking their promises to the West. Hmm, yeah. And there was also another attack uh, on Wednesday morning, attacks on oil refineries within Russia as well. And I mean, this all seems significant, Mark, that Moscow is being attacked, that there's these other uh, attacks happening as well. What kind of impact does it have to see these attacks within Russia, though? I mean, that's difficult to measure, but um, 
and particularly since I've been banned from going to Russia since almost the start of the conflict. But it, my friends who live in Moscow, the people I knew when I used to live there long ago, um, they have, I think it'd be fair to say, largely um, lived through this conflict without it changing their lives very much. I mean, prices went up because of Western sanctions. There was briefly a fear they'd be drafted, but that appears to happen in cities other than Moscow. It seems to happen out in the Russian regions more than, you know, to middle class folks uh, working jobs in, in the Russian capital. So, you know, when you wake up the day after, um, you know, whether it's eight or 25 explosive drones have come to this city that felt very remote, 800 kilometers from the war, it has to make you think, you know, could that have been your apartment block that got hit or uh, your neighborhood that had this drone attack? But also, you know, surely it has people questioning what this war is about and why 15 months after they were told there'd be this, you know, brief and glorious victory over the Ukrainians, why they're now seeing the conflict go the other way. The scale of how wrong this has gone for Vladimir Putin must be apparent even through the haze of, of Kremlin propaganda. We'll be back after this message. Okay, Mark, let's let's talk about this looming counteroffensive that you mentioned. Uh, why are we hearing so much about it before it's actually even started? The reason why we're hearing about it is the deliveries of weapons have largely been completed. Ukraine has most of what it asked for at this point. The next ask is for uh, F-16 fighter jets. That's a future discussion. But... You know, Ukraine has its troops have, that are, you know, for the counteroffensive have been trained. They've now returned to the country. The weapons for the counteroffensive are here. Um, Russia, which launched its own big winter offensive, which has led to the retaking of uh, the city of Bakhmut after a nine month battle. But it, it does seem like the Russian offensive potential has been exhausted. They don't appear able to carry on in the, at the moment. So, now is the moment for a counterattack if it's going to come. Where that counterattack will happen, obviously, is not known. And that, you know, the keeping these things secret is strategic advantage for the Ukraine. So it's a closely guarded secret. One assumes that when it begins, we'll know. Yeah. And, and I guess so the idea is, OK, Ukraine's got these trained troops now. They've got these weapons that they're, they're probably going to do something with this. Uh, and I know you said the, the information is being kept quite secret. But do we have any sense, I guess, of, of what this counteroffensive could look like? There are a few options. I mean, just staring at the maps of the front line, you can see um, that one option that looks must look appealing to the Ukrainian uh, general staff is a thrust south from the city of Zaporizhia to the coast of the Azov Sea, because that would cut um, the Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine in two. You would have Crimea, which Russia has held since 2014, basically isolated from the rest of the Russian-controlled area. There's the single bridge which connects uh, Crimea to the, to the Russian mainland, and that bridge has already been damaged. It's been repaired, but it shows the Ukrainians can cut that cord. Um, they've done it once, they can do it again. So if there is a strategic gain that Vladimir Putin has gotten from this war, it is the creation of this um, land bridge, for want of a better word, connecting Russia to the Donetsk and Luhansk areas through the port of Mariupol and Berdyansk into the Kherson region down to down to Crimea. So that, that allows them to sort of run trains and trucks back and forth to deliver weapons, food, everything to, to this part that, uh, of Ukraine that Vladimir Putin annexed uh, nine years ago. That must look appealing because it, you can see an obvious strategic advantage. 
Um, but of course, the fact that we're looking at it means the Ukrainians may be also be looking, but also the Russians are looking at it. They're preparing. You can see digging trenches there. They've built uh, firing positions. Um, believe, you know, it's, it's easy to assume they've, they've put a lot of landmines in that uh, area. So there, it may yet be as last fall when everybody was staring at the city of Kherson in the south of Ukraine going, that is an obvious target for a Ukrainian counterattack. And we were all sort of waiting for the uh, attack on Harrison to begin, and suddenly there was an attack in, in 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 the Kharkiv region, which caught everybody, including obviously the Russian forces off guard. And and just going back to that, um, those attacks into Russia, maybe what, one of the more important things that came out of that was revealing that that part of the Russia-Ukraine border is poorly guarded. And so the Russians have to respond to that. You would assume they're by moving troops who are currently defending positions in the occupied areas of Ukraine around to places like Belgorod and Bryansk to make sure that these cities of Russia itself are safe. Um, and so that makes the rest of the defense line in eastern and southern Ukraine thinner and creates possibly... Uh, new options for the Ukrainian uh, general staff. Yeah. And so with the, the the example you talked about, Mark, you, you talked about disrupting supply lines, of course, which is a, a big deal. But I guess what what would Ukraine be ultimately looking to accomplish with this counteroffensive? I think there is a there's a couple of goals. Some of them are psychological. I mean, the the, the actual goal would be to retake some of the 15 percent of this country that is occupied by the Russian military. And um, I asked a military analyst last week, you know, what would you consider a gain? He said, even retaking one or two cities is great news, right? So if we, uh, Ukraine is pushing into the flanks right now of Bakhmut, the city that the Russians have just uh, captured, um, and giving them strategic sort of highlands around the city, which maybe that's another feint, maybe that's another distraction, but, you know, retaking Bakhmut and, and um, would be an enormous psychological victory for the Ukrainians, but also it, it would, you know, pushing the Russians back has its own benefits. But then you've got, you know, their 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 allies, their friends, their patrons in the West who are looking for sort of a return on investment almost. You know, we've given you all this stuff. Show us that it's not, that it's useful. Like, put, you know, if you want us to keep donating weapons, um, you know, air, if you want aircraft next, show us that you are capable of liberating these parts of Ukraine. Show us this is an effective strategy for us rather than, you know, maybe talking about making a peace deal with Russia. Wow. Okay, so if you and I are talking about the counteroffensive, I mean, Russia must be thinking about this as well. Uh, how is how is Russia preparing for this expected counteroffensive? So Russia has, uh, you know, open source imagery, satellite maps effectively, have shown that Russia has spent much of the past few months, and, and, and again, remember this is a, a war that Russia launched and it was on the offensive for most of the first 12 months, spent much of the last few months digging in, uh, trying to defend these territories that not only do they have they captured since February 2022, but which Vladimir Putin claims to have annexed. These are now, at least under Russian law, these are Russian territories that they are legally bound to defend. So they have been building networks of trenches and tank traps and uh, we can see firing positions. And, you know, the, it's clear the Russians are, are bracing. They're, they're, they, they know that NATO, the West, have given Ukraine substantive weapons. They know that their own troops are tired and are um, sort of struggling to go forward. So they, they're digging in, um, hoping to withstand this. And then, as we've seen previously in the war, if one side launches an attack, the other side tries its best to hold its ground, then they swap roles. 
Yeah. I mean, you just mentioned, of course, that Russian troops are tired, you know, especially after the battle for Bakhmut, which took a lot of energy and, and, and time and a, and a lot of casualties on the Russian side, too. How equipped is the Russian military for a potential counteroffensive? I mean, I should I should point out the Ukrainian military that there is this sort of force that has been off training in, in Britain and other places that one assumes is, is reasonably refreshed. But I have met Ukrainian troops on the front line in Donbass who have been fighting for the entire conflict. They fought in the Battle of Kiev. They fought in the Battle of Kharkiv. They fought in the Battle of Kherson. Now they're fighting in Donbass. And they've had maybe a couple of weeks off over 15 months of war. They've got concussions, even if they haven't been more seriously injured. Um, so exhaustion is a thing on both sides. And Russia has a bigger military, more the ability to call up more men. I don't want to underestimate you know, the fact that the Russian army is very large and has a lot of artillery, has a lot of tanks, they're dug in. This is not going to be easy for the Ukrainians. And, and I think there's a danger in expecting them to do too much to necessarily replicate what happened last year. But it's definitely a moment here where you can feel the momentum shifting. And it is the Ukrainians' turn to see what they can do. And the Russians know they are not in a position to dictate the terms right now. It's Ukraine that for the moment is dictating what happens next. Yeah. Just just lastly here, Mark, uh, you know, coming back to the attacks on Kiev where we, where we started, I mean, do we have any sense of kind of what this is going to look like going forward? Like, are, are we going to continue seeing quiet nights there or, or, or are we going to see more attacks on Kiev coming, going forward? It's a, it's a very good question, especially as this counteroffensive looms. I mean, will Russia retaliate or you know, make this part, sort of part of the equation? If you guys push forward in Donbass, we'll keep pummeling Kiev. Um, at the other hand, um, the Ukrainian air defenses have knocked down 90-something percent of what's been flung at the capital over the last three or four days. That must be really expensive for the Russian military. If you think about the cost of a cruise missile, these, these Iranian Shahid drones are cheaper, but there's a lot of military hardware flung at Kiev that basically blew up without having any impact at all. Does Russia want to keep wasting ammunition on a tactic that isn't working? I mean, that's difficult to say. The other truth is that Kiev is incredibly well defended right now, but other Ukrainian cities don't have this level of defense. And so Russia may abandon this attempt to sort of hit Kiev with all of its international missions and government headquarters here and instead target another city if it's just looking to sort of exact revenge for whatever's happening in the counteroffensive. It's impossible, has been impossible since the start to predict Russian tactics because, as I said, they don't make sense militarily and they make even less sense if you were trying to convince Ukrainians they belong to some Russian world. Hmm. Mark, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you so much and please stay safe. Thank you very much. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Adrian Chung is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.